Tonight's talk is the first talk I would like to give in a series of talks on a theme that I began here in the springtime. And clearly it's a theme that's of great interest to me because what began as one talk is now in three installments and there may be more to come. But I hope to complete it during this retreat. Um, the theme I'd like to begin exploring is the theme of personal mythology, our personal story, and awakening. What awakening means in relationship to our personal story. And as I continue with the talks over this retreat, what that awakening might mean in having our story in our life. Many of the fairy tales that we listen to as children and much of the mythology that we absorb revolves around a very central theme and in different forms, in different backgrounds and contexts, the theme of so many of our fairy tales and mythology is the theme of awakening. Awakening from the false through discovering what is true. Are the heroes and the heroines in our stories and in our myths cast aside disguises and identities that have served to confine them, imprison them, or limit them in some way in their lives? And they are able to cast aside those identities or disguises which are limited through discovering a greater sense of truth, a deeper understanding of who they are. As it turns out, the scholarly maid was actually a princess. And in awakening to that truth, she was able to leave behind her all of the world of the scullery maid, the drudgery and beating beat up by her older stepsisters and the sorrow and the struggle. The frog, as it turns out, was actually a prince, falsely imprisoned in a form which was not his in an awakening to the truth of who he was, he was able to leave behind the limitations of the toad. The duck, the ugly duckling, in actualities discovered is a swan. In falsely imprisoned, falsely imprisoned in a form and a life which was not her own, but became her own through the delusions she held about herself and through the delusions of others. Now, these stories and themes we find within our fairy tales and mythology are repeated again and again. They are telling us something. They are stories of unmasking, stories of revelation, 
and stories of awakening. And in those stories of awakening and revelation, the effect of that awakening is to be liberated from the disguises and the identities and the prisons that have served to suffocate and silence what was genuine and authentic and free within their being. These stories of awakening describe a journey of coming home to what is true and authentic. These themes of awakening found within our fairy tales describe a letting go of delusion, almost like a coming out of darkness, a coming out of the darkness of ignorance, of not knowing, of not understanding. Their stories and themes that tell us that delusion, not understanding the truth of who they were, is what led our heroes and heroines to accept the false as being true. In Buddhist teaching, this is the definition of delusion, to accept the false as being true. The power of delusion is that it can sentence not only our mythical heroes and heroines, but also ourselves, to embody a life which is limited by the limitations we have come to believe in to embody a life which is not the whole truth of who we are. Revelation, awakening, is about bringing to an end that exile from our own essential nature. Now this theme that we find in our fairy tales and much of our mythology is the same theme that is so central to spiritual teaching. It is what we are concerned with here, concerned with awakening, concerned with liberation, concerned with revelation. And perhaps one of the most traditional stories in the Dharma life that illustrates this theme is actually the story of the salt doll. There was a child made all of salt who very much wanted to know where it had come from. So it set out on a long journey and traveled to many lands in pursuit of this understanding. And finally it came to the shore of the great ocean. How marvelous it cried and stuck one foot in the water. And the ocean beckoned the child in further saying, if you wish to know who you are, do not be afraid. The salt child walked further and further into the water, dissolving with each step, and at the end exclaimed, Ah, now I know who I am. These stories are repeated again, not only in ancient, but in contemporary spiritual stories. There was the Prince Siddhartha, 
who sat beneath the Bodhi tree and awoke and arose as the Buddha, as one who was enlightened. It's the story of Ananda, one of the Buddha's most foremost disciples, who came to a point after he spent some time with the Buddha when there was a, a meeting scheduled for all the arahants, all the enlightened beings. And unfortunately, Ananda, although he was the closest disciple of the Buddha, hadn't actually understood the deepest truth. In other words, he was the only one in the crowd who wasn't enlightened. Needless to say, he didn't feel especially good about this, according to the stories. So he determined that before the meeting took place, he would practice so intensively and so hard he was going to get there by the time the meeting started. So for days and nights he sat and walked and sat and walked, never sleeping, never resting. And finally it was the night before the meeting, and alas, alack, still no liberation. And Ananda said, I give up, I give up. And he laid down, and in that moment of lying down, awoke and was liberated. So many of the stories that we hear in the spiritual world speak about the immediacy and the depth of revelation, the immediacy and the depth of awakening. That in awakening, there is a fundamental transformation that takes place within our consciousness. It is not just a little glimmer of light, but there is something that radically is altered on a cellular level. If we listen to the teachings and to the stories, I think we also see that in a very real way, Revelation and profound understanding actually has little to do with time. It has little to do with gradual improvements or gradual progress. It is much perhaps more true to say that awakening to what is true means the veils are removed of ignorance. The Zen tradition has a wonderful way of putting it. And they say that when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. It is not, in the teaching, it is not so much that the power of delusion is gradually whittled away through sweat and tears and gradually dispersed. It is much more, I think, taught that it is insight that dissolves the false. That deep understanding speaks with its own truth and it dissolves all of that which is untrue. And in dissolving the chains and the power of delusion so too does profound understanding also dissolve and dispel all of the struggles and conflicts and sorrows that are intrinsic to delusion. 
I think this is very important for us to understand. When we struggle, when we suffer, when we are in conflict, it is not because we understand what is true. It is not because we are deeply connected with what is authentic and genuine within our being and within all things. Struggle and conflict are the offspring of delusion, of believing the false to be true. Another dimension of revelation, another dimension of awakening, is that it is extraordinarily profound. It is more than just a temporary or a fleeting little glimpse of reality. On a cellular level, there is the abandonment of believing any longer in the false. The Buddha said that wood can turn into ashes, but ashes cannot turn into wood. So if you ask, you know, or if you question, is there an abiding liberation that is not affected by time or circumstances or experience, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. One does not go from understanding profound truth and return to delusion. According to our stories, according to this teaching, according to the teaching of awakening. Understanding what is true, really profound understanding, is a way of seeing that is totally saturated with joy, with happiness, and with peace. The truth, understanding the truth, brings us peace. It brings us happiness. Perhaps you have seen that in your experience here. Awakening to what is true means laying down the burden of grasping, of division, and laying down the pain of separation. It means laying down the suffering of homelessness, of being exiled from what is true. This is not just a personal revelation. I think this is so important to understand. Awakening or liberation is not just that I discover something true about myself or some personal experience that I then hold to be mine. Awakening is about awakening to a, a depth of reality, an essential reality that has nothing to do with just me. But in awakening, that truth and reality is reflected and seen in all things that are heard, that are touched, that are seen, that lie beneath the world of appearances. The bottom line, nobody ever complains about enlightenment. No one ever complains about awakening. There is no postscript to the story of the toad who that woke as a prince. You know, the prince is not kind of looking around and cherishing fond memories of the slime and the mud and the weeds. You know, there is no story about the princess kind of, you know, looking back with rosy memories on her days of a scullery maid and thinking, oh, I had a little bit more to learn from, you know, the drudgery and the toil. You know, the duckling, uh, the swan, doesn't look back to her life as a duckling and think, oh, you know, I had 
I think I'll do with a little bit more exploration of rejection and harmlessness <laughs> and exile, you know. And as much as I have ever learned from the sutras of the Buddha, I have never heard him anywhere say that, you know, he was bored with being enlightened, you know, and wished he could have a few more nights of carousing in the palace. It seems that the truth revealed in awakening and understanding and revelation is powerful enough to shatter the chains of the past. Certainly, there is nothing missing and nothing to be gained. There is nothing absent and nothing to be pursued. It is not an extinction of anything but ignorance. And in the extinction of ignorance, there is revealed a fullness of being. Now, many of the themes of our fairy tales and our mythology and many of the themes of this teaching really resonate within us. They touch within us a chord of response, a spark of inspiration. Longing, seeking, is an essential part of every spiritual journey. Within the stories of so many of our myths, within the stories of so many people that we admire. We do, in very real ways, see our own story repeated and reflected in different forms. Who among us does not really dedicate our lives to searching for and seeking for peace and happiness and intimacy? Who among us does not actually commit our lives to searching and seeking for communion and oneness and freedom. Who among us does not really find ourselves longing, although we may not always recognize it, to dissolve the barriers of separation and division. And no matter in our lives how many hardships we meet, how many times of sorrows we experience, and how many times we feel ourselves to fail. It is almost as if we are possessed of a kind of homing instinct that leads us again and again to look, to seek, to search for a sense of meaning, a sense of authenticity, a sense of truth within our lives. Look at what happens here. You know, I know that many of you sit with enormous challenge, you know, with pain, with emotional crisis, with, with feelings of disconnection, with struggle, with, with conflict. I know that many of you sit with this hour after hour. And yet, look, you're still here. You're still here. Do you ever wonder what it is that leads you to come back and sit and walk and sit and walk, you know, rather than, you know, getting in your car and going to the nearest beach. I mean, it's not fear of us, you know. We've never dragged anybody into a meditation room, you know. We've never beaten anybody into a walking, you know, and gone around checking to see who's sleeping in the day. You know, we don't do this. <laughs> We have monitors to do it for us. 
we don't do this. <laughs> you thought they were smoke alarms. <laughs> I, I take it back in case anybody's paranoid today. This is not true. <laughs> you return, you return. I mean, there is something so indomitable within you. There is something so incredibly courageous and dedicated that leads us to return again and again. And somewhere there within us, there does lie that profound confidence and that spark, that deep, profound spark of intuition that says it is possible for us to live as awake and free human beings. This path and what we do here is so much just another extension, another dimension of the paths that we have followed so many times in our lives, searching for what is intuitively possible. Intuitively, we understand it is possible for us to live without greed, without hatred, without anger, and without separation. Something within us knows that to live in a way of greed and anger and hatred is an offense to that which is most authentic and most true within ourselves. There's a native shaman who once said, we can live in this world heedlessly as if we are not part of it living in a way of anger. We live in a way which is untrue to that which is most genuine within ourselves, and we know it. It's not always easy to stay connected with our own intuition and our own sense of inspiration, because we live in a world, and many of the messages we receive from our world are the messages of collective delusion. You know, when you turn on the TV, do you hear much about renunciation? Do you hear much about selflessness? You know, when was the last time you heard about emptiness, you know, on television? You know, we don't have a lot of very powerful messages to us. Instead, we hear a lot of messages that emphasize appearance and performance, that emphasize the the need to possess and attain. We hear so many messages that, about the worship of success and prestige and the gain of pleasure. We hear so, message, so many messages of fear, that we need to be afraid of aging, we need to be afraid of dying, we need to be afraid of change. And at times, Probably all of us have, to some extent, shared in these stories and shared in these delusions. Probably there are times for many of us in our lives when we found ourselves striving really hard to be someone special, to make our mark upon the world, to gain and achieve. There's probably been times when we found ourselves pursuing success and invincibility and attempting to follow the paths of denial and avoidance. Somewhere, these stories don't ring true, and these paths don't ring true. 
It's also difficult at times to stay close to our own intuition because some of the messages we receive from our inner world are at times so confusing. You've probably seen how easy it is to be so fascinated in our own inner world with our, our personal story, our, our appearance, our judgments, our descriptions, our images, and how easy it is to be imprisoned by our own hungers and fears. Waking up is sometimes a difficult process in our lives, but we do begin to wake up to what the consequences are of many of these stories and many of these delusions. We are aware, all of us, I think, that prejudice and division and exploitation thrive upon delusion. We are aware that pain and sorrow and suffering thrives upon believing in delusion to be true. How many people find themselves entangled in their own beliefs? Many people look in the mirror in the morning or look at themselves inwardly here and are captured by their own beliefs. They say, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm unworthy, I'm an inadequate, I'm, I'm a failure, I'm ugly, I'm unlovable, I'm, I'm not acceptable. These beliefs and these delusions that bring so much pain into our being, they are really, in essence, no different than the delusions that lead one person to kill another because one is a Muslim and one is a Serb, that lead a person to, to violate another because they feel superior or to hide in fear because they feel inferior. These are all the delusions of separation. Intuitively, I feel in our hearts we are unwilling to bless these delusions. Somewhere we hold within us the vision that there is another path we can follow. And somewhere within us we know that the compassion that will heal our world and the peace that will bring to an end division and war and the understanding that will free us and free our world, that this compassion and peace and understanding, they're not formulas, they're not strategies or prescriptions, they're not born of resolution or willpower. But I think we understand that the compassion and peace and understanding that heals and liberates is the most natural embodiment of understanding what is true and living in accord with what is true. Waking up in our lives is an intensely personal affair. No one can wake us up. No one else can wake us up. No one can deliver us freedom. No one can gift to us peace or understanding. 
It is such a journey that in many ways we walk alone. To take that commitment upon ourselves and that dedication upon ourselves to know that there is nothing more worthy in this life than to be free. That there is nothing more worthy in this life than to be awake. It is intuition that guides us to a spiritual path, to a life that we live here, a life of letting go, a life of simplicity, a life of acceptance and inquiry. It is not always an easy path to follow because we encounter many apprehensions and many fears. In some ways, we encounter the ways in which our sense of self desires to stay within the boundaries of what we know and what is familiar to us. Many times we experience this. You know, we begin to feel just a little bit awake in a day. You know, and the moment that we feel a bit awake, we get assaulted by the most intense fantasy. You know, we can come to a moment of stillness, a moment of quietness, and almost immediately that little voice appears and says, well, I'm not sure about this, you know, or look at it, I wonder if this is real quietness or real stillness, you know. <laughs> you know, how often the moments that we begin to kind of move out of what is really familiar to us, we get these kind of multiple hindrance attacks, you know, <laughs> that say, uh-uh, you know, no way, no way, we're not entering into unknown territory. Stay back here, you know, this may be absolute dukkha, but at least we know it, you know. <laughs> in some ways, we encounter the ways in which we have strong desires for safety, strong desires for identity, for pleasure, and for certainty. And we're not always trustful about what lies in letting go, what lies in the unknown. And there's a part of us that sometimes doesn't trust our own capacity for awakening. It's a curious thing that happens in the West that somehow we have this idea that enlightenment was just something that happened thousands of years ago. We hear the stories of the duckling and the prince and the scullery maid awakening. We hear the stories of the Buddha and Ananda, and there's actually really a lot of these stories around. And yet there's a part of us that almost wants to distance ourselves from these stories. We, maybe we think, well, you know, these were special people with special karma, they belonged in special times, maybe they had special teachers or special development or whatever. And there's a part of us that also says, well, you know, I have a certain fondness for myself, for my life, for who I am. And that despite the hardships or the conflicts or the disillusionments or the struggles that I might go through, there can be a part of us that is really not quite sure about whether we're willing to let go of our story or our belief in our story, whether we're willing actually to let go of our identity, our sense of ident identity. 
because there's no guarantees here. There are no promises made. There are no rewards. You know, there are no, no guarantees that if you let go here, you're going to live happily ever after. There aren't any. In an ideal spiritual path, an ideal spiritual path, ideal in our mind, an ideal spiritual path in our mind would probably look like this. You know, that we would sit down and we would discover boundless depths of peace, happiness, bliss, communion, connectedness, wisdom. And after that, we would let go. Now, things work a little differently here. This is the bad news. Here we are asked to let go first. Here we are asked to let go first and to see what unfolds. Now, this doesn't always feel like a deal that we're especially comfortable with. We face the possibility, and I hope we are facing the possibility of awakening and revelation here. And in facing that possibility, we also face one of the deepest dilemmas of our own hearts and of the spiritual path. We greet the possibility of awakening and freedom with a mixture of fear and longing, with a mixture of allure, and terror. Part of this is to do somewhat with our terminology. You know, we hear the words emptiness and, you know, our minds get really busy with this and we think, oh God, this means annihilation and and self-destruction and I'm going to be invisible and, you know, emptiness, what on earth is going to happen in my life, you know, what's going to inspire me and it's going to disappear. In, certainly in spiritual teaching, in this teaching, awakening actually means a cessation of separation. And it's important to understand that the cessation of separation really does mean the cessation of a separate self. There's no way to make this look more pleasant. <laughs> this, this is just it. A way, uh, the cessation of separation means the cessation of a separate self. Now, we can sense maybe the wondrous possibilities of that. Imagine, imagine no more perception of separation, division. We can sense the wondrous possibilities of that, but we also fear it because we wonder what guides us. Is, does this mean a cessation of our uniqueness and creativity? We often think, in, strangely enough, we often think in terms of, when we think of awakening, we often think in terms of what we might lose. You know, I mean, there's nothing to bear this out, you know, but that is the thought, what am I going to lose? You know, what might I lose? Well, I can tell you, there's a lot of things you might lose, but... (laughs) 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 Happiness, well-being, truth, liberation, they're not amongst them. 
I mean, if you don't have them now, how can you lose them? <laughs> how can you be afraid of losing something you don't have, but necessarily has an abiding sense of truth and reality in your life? I mean, this is getting purely into fantasy land. We might think, well, enlightenment's fine, you know, if I'm going to retire to a convent or a cave, you know, or take up a permanent position on a Zafo. But we might think, well, you know, enlightenment looks really barren. I mean, do enlightened people have fun? You know, do they go to movies? Do they have relationships? You know, do they enjoy their food? You know, do they smile? You know, or do enlightened people sit around, you know, kind of poker faced, you know, <laughs> watching the world of phenomena and its emptiness just passing them by? I mean, we, you know, we, you know, these questions are real questions that arise for us, you know. Does enlightenment mean a, a cessation of creativity, of passion, of love? You know, we long for freedom and we long for the end of separation. And yet in so many ways, our fears and our holding keeps us within the territory of the familiar. You know, this idea of not having a separate self, I mean, we can joke about it, but actually this is obviously profoundly terrifying to the separate self. You know, this is profoundly terrifying. You know, we, we think of what is the center of most of the stuff that goes on here. You know, it is this idea of self, this idea of who we are, you know, we have no idea, maybe, of what even our life would look like without a separate self, without our sense of identity, our sense of separateness, me, you know, I. You know, there are many, so much ambivalence that arises around this kind of letting go and this kind of opening, this kind of possibility. You know, sure, we would all like to be enlightened in theory, you know. It sounds great. On the other hand, we'd probably all, if we were really honest, say, well, I'd really like to be there to enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, it really doesn't see much point. I mean, who, who benefits? <laughs> Who benefits? I mean, we can, one level, maybe we can see, well, yes, the universe truly benefits, but that... <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of like being offered cold porridge, you know, it doesn't excite you that much. It is hard to digest a possibility of awakening, a possibility of seeing, a possibility of revelation in which we are absent in which my sense of self is absent. Certainly we find ourselves on this path that we are more than willing to shed the more difficult attributes of our separate self. You know, we are more than willing and absolutely delighted to say farewell to defensiveness and anger and obsessions and judgment and greed and jealousy and all those other things. But we would actually, you know, possibly like the best of all worlds. We would like an improved and perfected and more admirable self that we could retain and feel it was that, you know, that we could enjoy. And we would like to be there to enjoy this improved and perfected self. 
Now, there is no story, there is no teaching that supports this possibility. So, if you have been entertaining it, it's time to look anew. <laughs> you can save yourself, actually, a lot of time. Awakening to what is true, dissolving what is false. Understanding what is true, dissolving all divisions. This is the whole purpose of the spiritual life the whole purpose of a path of inquiry and compassion is to see through the world of appearance to a truth that is abiding, that is beyond time and beyond conditions. There's something I'd like to read to you. Reality is simply the loss of the separate self. Lose the separate self by seeking its identity. It will automatically vanish and reality will shine forth by itself. This is the direct method. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. We think that there is something hiding reality and that this must be destroyed before reality is gained. How ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will laugh at all your past struggles. That which will be on the day you laugh is also here and now. When we enter into a contemplative time, a time of retreat, a time of aloneness, as we become more calm and more clear, Sometimes we see very immediately and directly the clash that lies between our fascination and longing for understanding and for truth and awakening and our equal fascination with our separate selves, with the world of appearances and with holding on to our stories. There is a curious paradox that is revealed in meditation. I mean, this practice emphasizes this profound simplicity. The practice encourages us to cling nowhere and to dwell upon nothing. The practice encourages us to see the wisdom of impermanence, to see transparency. And as we practice, you know, so we find that this becomes more accessible to us. Our minds are less cluttered. There is left less driftwood floating around. We are more present and more attentive. And as we become clearer, inwardly and calmer, it also seems that in the light of that attentiveness, also our feelings, our patterns, our themes, our tendencies, our themes of obsession, our stories, also become clearer to us. You know, that whole inner world which previously seemed so vague or, or, you know, condensed and full, actually is revealed to us much more clearly. We see the ways in which we carry the burdens of the past. We see our patterns of judgment and anger and anxiety. And in a very real way, this greater clarity in seeing our inner world it is a revelation. It is a kind of revelation to us that before that which was shadowed, 
becomes revealed to us in the light of attentiveness. Now this revelation of being closer to our sense of who we are can also evoke different responses within us. And one of them is we can become deeply fascinated with our own stories. Our story can create its own longing. You know, we, we may find ourselves longing to, to trace the origins of our patterns and our fears and our insecurities. We might find ourselves longing to get rid of aspects of ourselves that we're not comfortable with, that we don't welcome. We might find ourselves longing to fix ourselves, to become more perfect. This, this inner revelation of who we are, when it becomes a fascination with our story, can actually create its own addiction. It can create its own addiction. We want to know where this comes from. We want to know how to get rid of it. We want to know the right strategies. We want to know all of the origins. It can create its own addiction. And in that fascination, our own longing or yearning to understand what it means to be free is actually frequently demoted. Or we think that we will gain freedom. We think that we will gain awakening through getting rid of these parts of ourselves that seem to create so much complexity. Or we think we'll gain freedom by resolving our issues and improving ourselves. <coughs> In some ways, what are we are doing in this fascination and this, this search for improvement and self-perfection, it's an attempt at times to rewrite our stories. And sometimes within that, there's a very subtle grasping of, again, of the idea of self. Sometimes it's motivated by the greatest of intentions. You know, we want to free ourselves of the unwholesome and the limiting we seek, I feel we're seeking for happiness and compassion and peace. But we believe that we will find this through having a perfect sense of self. And having a perfect sense of self means getting rid of the imperfect self. We believe that the imperfect self is the primary obstacle to being awake. Well, it is not. It is not. You do not have to be perfect to be free. You do not have to have an improved and refined self in order to awaken. Much of our notions about the self are simply that. They are notions. There is no hindrance and no limitation with any, within any of the images or within any of the notions, the hindrance and the limitation lies within the belief. And the hindrance and the limitation lies within the holding. There is no doubt that our sense of self is of enduring interest in our lives. Out of our belief in who we are, are born our fears and our needs. Out of our belief in our story and who we are is born our ambitions and our aversions and our opponents from our judgments about who we are. 
are born our strategies and our prescriptions. Our sense of self carries our stories and our histories and our dramas. It's a central figure in every moment of success and failure. It seems that there is no experience which is complete without the self to make it happen or for it to have, to have it happen to. Our sense of self is the bearer of our personal mythology and it is hard to conceive of a way of being and a way of seeing which is not governed by our idea of self. We even believe, well, our idea of self got us this far in our lives and it's going to take us all the way to enlightenment or enlightenment is going to happen to me. There is a finely balance, fine balance to find within this path. We're not interested in annihilating the self. Why box with shadows? We are not interested in attempting to deny or negate the self. We are not interested in trying to improve or fix or perfect the self. This path is really committed to understanding what can unfold when we are able to rest in not knowing when we are able to rest in a way of being in which we hold no conclusion to be true, in which we hold no image and no definition and no description to be the truth of who we are. What does it mean for us to rest in not knowing? See what happens if we can bring that light of openness into those moments of judgment, those moments of despair, those moments of striving, those moments of so many images. What does it mean for us to rest in not knowing, to have no conclusions about ourselves in any way, to entertain the possibility that any idea and any notion and any image that is conditioned by grasping can never be the truth? If you had a precious jewel, and you dropped it into a pond of water, you would be unlikely to be able to find that jewel by taking a long stick and stirring up the waters, and stirring up the mud so that all that you could see was a great cloudy mass. To find that precious jewel, you would need to look more closely and more clearly into the waters that were still to see that was what was actually shining there. To be able to sit and to walk without demanding any answers, to be able to sit and to walk without resting in any con conclusion, it really is to sit like a mountain receiving the sun, receiving the wind, receiving the rain, and to be there in that great presence, to be there simply in that great presence. If we could have a couple of minutes quietly together. <clears throat>
be at peace within themselves. May all beings be at peace with all things. May all beings live in peace.